This episode is brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. In today's episode... So what happened after 15 minutes or 30 minutes? Does the whole world explode? This meeting is showing how we do not learn from history, how history repeats itself. Welcome back to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. In this episode, we present the second case from the Management of Hypertensive Disorders of Pregnancy according to International Guidelines session held at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine meeting this year and moderated by Dr. Eugene Chang. We join the session as Dr. John Barton steps up to the podium to present case number two, severe gestational hypertension. We're going to move on to case two. Dr. Gus Decker was supposed to present this case. Unfortunately, he could not make it, and John Barton has graciously agreed to step in for him last minute. So thank you, Dr. Barton. I think the more accurate thing was I was volunteered by Baja yesterday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> fill the time, you know. <laughs> no, to fill the time. That's all that he needed him for. So uh, this patient, a 30-year-old, gravitated 2, pairs 0, AB1, 32, and 6, with new onset elevated blood pressure, 168 over 112. First question is, is this an inpatient or is this an outpatient? If this is an inpatient, then what I would do is validate the elevated blood pressure exists, check her position, cuff size, whether she's having pain, uterine activity, and then repeat the blood pressure 15 minutes later. And if she's still above that target, order your antihypertensives and then reassess the blood pressure before you give it. And the point I make is that was the initial blood pressure valid? And as we have increasing size of patients were using automated cuffs, it's amazing how many automated blood pressures are taken and the blood pressure is not valid. I mean, in this patient with a BMI of 70, the cuff is about a foot below where it should be. So make sure that blood pressure is validated. Now, if this is in the office or triage and you still get the same blood pressure, then follow the American Heart recommendations. Make you know, check the position, cuff size. Have her relax for five minutes. No talking. Legs uncrossed. Repeat it 15 minutes later. And if we're still above that cutoff of 160-110, then we need to arrange a transfer to some facility or a hospital. Uh, you could consider an oral antihypertensive. And then once she's in the hospital, follow the protocol from there. So again, if this is persistent blood pressure greater than 160 over 110, then she would meet the criteria for severe gestational hypertension, and clearly she was less than 34 weeks. So based on the uh, ACOG Hypertension and Task Force, the things that we would do for someone with severe gestational less than 34 weeks would be administer steroids. She should be There's debate about whether she should be on mag prophylaxis or not, whether she has symptoms or not. Certainly, this is a patient that warrants bringing her blood pressure down to a safer (coughs) range. As far as fetal surveillance and ultrasound for assessment of estimated fetal weight, amniotic fluid volume, biophysical profile, fetal heart rate monitoring, and then review, does she have symptoms? Does she meet criteria for severe preeclampsia rather than just severe gestational hypertension? So one of the questions was, does she need laboratory evaluation? And the answer would be yes, a CBC with platelets, liver function test, serum creatinine. But specifically from the task force, we would not recommend that she have a uric acid. So if we have indications for delivery, 
such as worsening maternal status, then I'd proceed on with delivery. If she doesn't, then continue to observation and manage her base based on her clinical or laboratory findings. So the fetal guidelines for delivery in someone with severe gestational hypertension less than 34 weeks would be fetal distress or non-reassuring tracing by fetal heart rate, biophysical profile that was persistently less than, equal to or less than four. There's probably going to be some changes in what the initial task force recommended, not just an estimated fetal weight less than the fifth percentile, but with some other comorbidity. Oligoadramnios defined as an MVP less than two or reverse diastolic flow. Whether there's labor, whether there's ruptured membranes or not, that still could influence your decision to proceed on with delivery. Now, as far as proteinuria evaluation, that really would depend on whether there were symptoms or not. From the task force, basically preeclampsia is gestational hypertension plus some other end organ manifestation. If she has symptoms, then you don't need the proteinuria because you've got preeclampsia. If her blood pressure resolves to mild and her testing is normal and she has no symptoms, then clearly this is a person that would, again, against what Baja is starting to do in Houston, but by the task force would warrant some proteinuria assessment. Now, whether that's a PC ratio or whether that's a 24-hour urine can be debated. If you're in an underserved area and you don't have the benefit for either of those, then you could consider a dipstick. But I think the bottom line is if symptoms, she has preeclampsia, she doesn't need proteinuria evaluation. Now, the issue becomes she has elevated blood pressure. What do we treat? How quickly do we treat? And this is about as new information as you can get. It came out last week. This is the new ACOG committee opinion and essentially reaffirms what was from about 10 years ago. Acute onset, severe hypertension that's accurately measured (coughs) using standard techniques that is persistent for 15 minutes or more is considered a hypertensive emergency. And then later on, it would require antihypertensive therapy. Now, previously, the thought has been it needs to be treated within 15 minutes. And we're going to show some different thoughts about does it need to be 15 minutes. And then secondly, within the committee opinion, when acute onset severe hypertension is diagnosed in the office setting, the patient should be sent to the hospital expeditiously for treatment. Now, going back in time, because there's uh, ACOG District 2, there's California, there's Task Force, there's the NICE guidelines, there's the Canadian guidelines, there's the Australian guidelines, all using somewhat different maximum doses or dosing intervals for labetalol. But really it comes back to the study that Bill Maybe did in 1987 where he looked at a, a comparison of labetalol to hydralazine. And in his original study, the dosing was 20, 40, 80, 80, 80 for a maximum of 300 milligrams in the first hour. Now, some of the recommendations have come out and said 220 milligrams per 24 hours. That's not what the original paper said, or that you bail out after the first dose of 80 milligrams. But this is what the original pharmacokinetics showed. And when you go back and look at Bill's paper, clearly it's not uncommon to need more than 220 milligrams of labetalol in that first hour to bring a blood pressure into the controlled dose. 45% of the patients required a dose greater than 60 milligrams. Essentially, a third required more than 200. And 20% of the patients in this study required the maximum dose, which was 300 milligrams of labetalol to bring the <coughs> blood pressure down. So what did the task force say? The task force felt that before delivery, a systolic of greater than 160, irrespective of their diastolic pressure, or if it was a diastolic with gestational hypertension, should be treated within minutes. 
Now, is minutes two minutes or is minutes 59 minutes? It wasn't stated very clearly. But then there's a difference in postpartum. We're giving you up to, from the task force reports, we're giving you up to 60 minutes to treat severe hypertension once they're postpartum. But again, using cutoffs of 160 and 110. Now, the International Society for Hypertension Pregnancy published their guidelines in 2014. They used 160 to 170 over 110, lowering over a few hours. And then to further confuse it, we've got the Canadian guidelines, which, again, using 160 to 110 over minutes to hours. And then if it's uncontrolled severe hypertension over 12 hours despite three agents, then they're suggesting to proceed with delivery. So the problem is, how often are we measuring blood pressure? And the answer is, with automated blood pressure cuffs, we're doing it a lot more commonly than we did with the sphingomanometers. It's not unrealistic for someone that's on an oxytocin infusion that's getting blood pressure measurements every 30 minutes that in over a, you know, somebody made the point of a four-day induction. On a four-day induction, you'd have 200 blood pressure measurements. Even with a two-day induction, you're looking at 100 measurements. And then the point in the treatment is what are obstacles to treat if we're going to treat within 15 minutes. If the patient is not admitted, if they're in the clinic, if they're in the triage, if they're taking blood pressure medicine at home, how do we get them in to treat within 15 minutes? If any of you here have an EMR and know what it takes to get into the EMR, answering all the Medicaid requirements, is it less than two midnight stays? Is it more than two midnights that you have to put in the ICD-9 before it'll let you order a drug? These patients need IV access, and then the pharmacy has to deliver the drug. Even though there are some thoughts through the California initiative of having the drug box available on labor and delivery, most pharmacies are not going to let you do that because of concern with allergies and interactions and charging for the drug. So what are the recommendations? I think it should come down to, again, the treatment for the sustained severe hypertension. A single episode, more than 15 minutes, (coughs) first of all, shouldn't commit the patient to a diagnosis of severe disease. And I think there's some misrepresentation in the ACOG task force once you meet severe gestational hypertension, does that mean you're, you're committed to delivering? And I think the problem with that is we're going to overdiagnose and overtreat and probably treat with delivery more than we should. I think the treatment for the severe hypertension realistically should be as soon as possible, but up to 60 minutes. And we may want to consider not only systolic blood pressure, but its association with the mean arterial pressure. And the decision for the management and delivery shouldn't be based only on the severe hypertension. We need to look at the whole picture, the maternal status, the fetal status. And then the last question was, should this patient be an inpatient or outpatient? I think that depends on symptoms. If they have symptoms, then they don't belong at home, even with close monitoring. So I'll be happy to answer any questions, and the panel will as well. Thanks. All right, any comments from the panel first? I wouldn't strongly disagree with the, the, the management, particularly that we would, I said, as I said earlier, we use 150-100 as a criteria for, for a medication. Uh, we would start with oral therapy. About 80% of women will settle with oral therapy alone um, with no need for IV therapy. We'd use Levitol 200 milligrams, and if they don't get blood pressure falling within an hour, you repeat that until blood pressure will fall. We have no problems giving people drugs because we have a health service in the UK, so when someone comes into the hospital, drugs are available to be given by us to 
system, so I don't know the complications of getting drugs um, out. Um, and our pharmacists are quite happy us giving levitalol um, without restriction. So from that point of view, we would treat reasonably aggressively and then see what happens. As I said before, sometimes the patients will settle and there's no need to continue the therapy. So uh, under 34 weeks, um, our, our balance is that we'd lower blood pressure, we monitor the baby. As long as the baby is fine and uh, we use Doppler as our main criteria, if the umbilical Doppler is normal and the microvolume is normal, then the assumption will be that baby will be fine no matter what you hit the mother with. So you can lower the blood pressure and give steroids and then see how things pan out. But as I said before, generally, in someone who has true preeclampsic uh, disease, and you will not get more than, say, 15 days from them. So you're aiming for 10 to 15 days prolongation of pregnancy from the moment of admission. Peter. Thanks, John. That was great. Um, so the intent behind the wording in the Canadian guideline about minutes to hours is that there's no panic. If she's got a systolic of 210, when you measure it, she's probably had it for a few hours. It doesn't need to be under 160 in the next 30 minutes. You want to take a measured approach. You don't want it to get any worse, but you and you want it to start coming down over a period of time. Like the British, we're also enthusiasts for oral therapy. I'm glad that the new document that's just come out has supported the use of oral nifedipine. We're a bit worried about the 20 milligram dose mentioned in there of capsule. We think that might be a little bit too much. But that said, we're glad that that's happened and the Canadian guideline also supports the use of oral labetalol under the setting as well. You just need to know your drug. When we looked at the performance of parenteral hydralazine compared with the three other standards which are labetalol and uh, either form or, or, or um, nifedipine, nifedipine works more frequently. It was a better antihypertensive than is hydralazine and it's less associated with overshoot. So overshoot of blood pressure that goes too far down and, and may be associated with a compromised fetus and rushing off to theatre to do a crash cesarean section, which is purely iatrogenic. But I, th I think over the last 10 years, there's been a huge convergence of opinion between the international guideline groups about both thresholds and targets with severe hypertension and increasing agreement over which agents to use. I, I, I Hopefully that's helped clarify. Because you have to understand that people in, in um, India look at us and think, well, what's wrong with these high-income high country people? You know, the Americans say this, the Canadians say that, the British say that, the Australasians <laughs> say something else. It's very confusing for them, and they do look to us for standards. So the more that we can align our opinions, the better we will do for the global population of women rather than just the women to whom we have a direct duty of care. I didn't show the slides, but one of the points that District 2 ACOG has come out with their guidelines, and they're strongly suggesting treatment within 15 minutes. And then you have the paper that came out, the 10 clinical diamonds by Clark and um, Hankins, that said a single value greater than 160 over 110 deserves immediate treatment. So, you know, my point is, I think we have to be careful not to just jump in and immediately bring blood pressure down unless we validated it. If, if the blood pressure is, is elevated, then certainly we could acutely bring it down. And I think in this patient less than 34 weeks, I would have no problem in starting an oral antihypertensive, whether that be labetalol or nifedipine. But the point about the IV treatment, regardless of whether you're using hydralazine or labetalol, if this is a patient that just came from the clinic or came from home, and she's volume constrained either of those drugs could acutely drop her pressure if she was not volume expanded. And I think going to Baja, the ACOG guidelines show that you can use 200 milligrams of labetalol orally while you're waiting to get to an IV line. Well, you're, what you are hearing here is that every group make their own guidelines as they go, based on nothing. So, John, my question to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm coming. You see, remember what 
Peter told you about how important blood pressure. In the same document, they tell you uncontrolled severe hypertension despite three medications for 12 hours is indication for delivery. Implied, it's okay to keep women with severe hypertension for 12 hours and nothing will happen to them. In the same document, in their table. I really think my biggest problem is, John, so what happened after 15 minutes or 30 minutes? Does the whole world explode? Where did these numbers come from? Can you show me any data anywhere in the whole world that says a blood pressure of 162 over 70 should be treated in 15 minutes or in 60 minutes or in 60 hours? The mean arterial blood pressure of a woman who has 160 over 70 is what? 100. This is equivalent to a blood pressure of 140 over 80. Why don't we treat someone with 140 over 80 after 15 minutes? Cerebral blood flow depends on mean arterial blood pressure. All I'm saying, we made this number as we go, and nobody can show me a bit of evidence where it comes from. Whether it is District 2, the California, ACOG, the Canadians, everybody, they create their own number. It's really about time. We should say stop. Let's start being rational, because we're confusing the heck of everybody. That's all what I'm going to say. I'm sure Gene is confused. Right, I'm gonna, I'm all, I live in a state of confusion. I will say that my blood pressure is always well greater than 160 over 110 yeah. when I interact with the EMR. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Can anybody tell um, me why 160 over 70 is dangerous? All right. uh, and 150 over 100 is not dangerous. Well, I mean, that pressure is higher than that. All right, I'll let Peter make a comment, then we'll take some <laughs> questions from the audience. So I think you've been characteristically disingenuous, Baha. The, this is the table. I'll uh, show it to you. I mean, both, both the man imme immediately to your left and the confidential inquiries into maternal deaths in the UK have shown that a systolic of 160 is a critical threshold for stroke risk. Acute stroke risk is more associated with systolic blood pressure than with mean arterial pressure. Stroke risk in you and me as we age, which is a privilege, is more associated with mean arterial pressure over decades. But acutely, you're more likely to stroke due to systolic hypertension related to your MAP. And the other thing is to say that people are just making these things up. Yeah. As they go along. Well, I'd like to congratulate ACOG for the first time actually putting an evidence review into a guideline. It's a huge step forward. Most of the rest of us have been doing it for decades. And you know, the, the best quality evidence we have, Baha, are randomized controlled trials. You've participated in a few. We do. We have control, randomized controlled data um, to support the decisions. And if you look at the Canadian guideline, everything is characterized by the level of evidence and the strength of the opinion. Congratulations. Absolutely. Are there questions? Dr. Lindheimer. This meeting is showing how we do not learn from history, how history repeats itself. If some of you remember, back approximately 1980, there was so much disagreement on hypertension in pregnancy that an internist an obstetrician would meet at the bedside and look at each other like some species of baboon. At that time, the National Institute of Health wanted to have a guidelines group, and I was called, and they wanted one obstetrician to guide them, and I pointed out that the obstetrician sets standard of care. That's for the National High Blood Pressure Education Program. Now, the history of that is important. It did not publish until it got 30 or 40 other organizations to go over it and to look at it 
God knows what. One might have been the Osteopathic Nurses Association, American Heart, and Nephrology, this and that, and brought in five or six international. For about 15 or 20 years, the National High Blood Pressure Education uh, Guidelines were, uh, were followed by, in, uh, uh, by most. Now we are seeing the exact same thing that led to it starting up. And even when we had the ACOG task force, which I sat in, when the NIH was asked to do the same thing and pass it around and or endorse it, etc., they said, oh, we don't do that anymore. We have to go back to that type of mentality, or you'll see the, the five baboons arguing again in another 10 years. Dr. Repke up front, and then the last question will be in the back after Dr. Repke. Much less controversial question. Uh, based on the, the slide up here, uh, how is proteinuria best assessed in this patient? So my question, I'd be interested in what the panel does in their institutions. Uh, because in teaching institutions, sometimes tests get ordered that weren't meant to be ordered. So let's say you do the protein-creatinine ratio, and it comes back 0.35. You didn't really want a 24-hour urine done, but they forgot to stop collecting the urine. And so in 24 hours, now the 24-hour urine is 220 milligrams. Which do I believe? So I would... Uh, so I, you don't have so the answer because you would have measured it in the first place. Well, <laughs> so John, John, so I want to know what, how much creatinine is in that urine and what her ideal body weight is for her height, and make sure that it wasn't an under-collection in the 24-hour, because that could be the simple solution <coughs> to the problem, and 25% of collections will be under-collections. But if it's a proper collection, I'll go with the higher number, because it keeps my patients safer. Well, I wouldn't disagree with that academic answer. The reality <laughs> is that our resident staff aren't generally operating at that level. They want to look at a number, and the number is... <coughs> greater than 300 milligrams in 24 hours or greater than 0.3. And when there's discordance, which is the number that we should be telling them they ought to be operating under? Well, um, I would take 24-hour urine collection, but the uh, and the reason is that PCR, in fact, is incredibly inaccurate. And if you look at all the papers, that the figures, and you're using different uh, units again than I would use. I would use 30 instead of uh, 0.3. As, but in the equivalent, in, if you look at it, in that a figure of down from 15, which would be the equivalent of 1.15 to you, up to 52 or 0.5, would be equivalent to 300 in a 24-hour urine sample by the different studies that have been done. So there is a variation of PCR. And so I would, if you've got an accurate 24-hour collection, I would take that as accurate. And if it's under 300, I would say she does not have significant proteinuria. Okay, there is a question in the very back. My name is Margaret. I'm a second-year fellow at, at NYU. And I was hoping to hear the panel's commentary regarding affecting delivery in a patient who's diagnosed with a where the fetus is otherwise doing well, um, we believe we have to wait till 37 weeks, but the way the document is currently suggests delivery at 34 weeks. I think most of the people here agree they have no symptoms, blood pressure is fine. Why deliver at 34 weeks? Does anybody disagree? I wouldn't disagree. And if, if she's got gestational hypertension and no proteinuria and no other symptoms and the baby is well grown, I would lower her blood pressure and yeah. keep her going to 39 weeks. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't induce her. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> Um, so, Hepatat 2, which is the, I mean, is the trial that's informative for
for your question actually showed worse outcomes if you induce at 34 weeks. Um, worse maternal and perinatal outcomes. So the threshold in Canada and the US, um, Yadis Baha and I agree on one thing, um, is, is <laughs> oh, 37 and zero. Um, in the UK, they've chosen to have a different response to hepatite, and they've, they, they've stuck with 39, which I think is where we used to be. We, um, but we, we, we lowered it down to 37, um, and, which is consistent with the ACOG wow. guideline. There, there, there's almost consensus. So. <laughs> almost. We could sing We Are the World as an intermission. We're going to get. You know, just to John Rabke. John, really, John Rabke brought up a very important point. Now you know why we're stopping doing this. After we started doing protein creatine ratio, physicians doing 24 hours. Every day I got four consultations. Everybody's so confused. There is so inconsistency in the results. This is why we said we are abolishing proteinuria because it's becoming so dangerous and confusing to everybody. Why not just, once you have hypertension, do testing twice and get rid of the whole issue? Because it's going to change whatever tests you do, and why in the world waste all of this time and effort and money on it? Okay. Um, Sarosh? So I think um, the way that I look at the new document, I personally am very confused exactly like the fellow was saying, um, between this 34 and 37. So if I read it correctly, the table says preeclampsia with severe features, so no protein, is the severe systolic or diastolic hypertension. But I feel if I have a patient between 34 and 37, and even if she's on medication, I look at it and say, well, she meets the criteria for severe features, and then it's very hard to start her on a second agent I like the guidelines from Adiza saying even if you have non-pituitary hypertension, even if it's severe hypertension, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I've read the document many times, it is severe features. So it says deliver at 34, between 34 and 37. The way it is currently, this is true. Severe gestational hypertension says you have to deliver at 34 and 0. That's what we're doing, which is... Hopefully it will be remedied, you know, in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Join us next time when Dr. J.J. Walker presents the third case from this session, superimposed preeclampsia. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology. This episode was brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies.